From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ's Week Ahead podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. Congressional Republicans seem ready to surrender on plans to pass individual spending bills to keep the government running next year, so much so that they're thinking about taking a six-month time out until after the elections and wait for a new president to be sworn in. The lawmakers don't seem to want to wait that long to address the opioid epidemic, and they're actually close to clearing a plan that takes aim at the widespread misuse of prescription painkillers. The plan contains no new spending, which might make it hard to carry out the policy, but it goes down easier in an era of tight budgets and gridlock. And Congress is also facing a tight deadline to renew the law that keeps the nation's aviation system running. To get there before recess, key lawmakers jettisoned language that would spin off the air traffic control system and make it a private entity. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call with a look ahead to the week of July 11th with CQ appropriations reporter Ryan McCrimmon, healthcare reporter Andrew Siddons, and transportation reporter Jacob Fischler. Ryan, let's start with you. You had a big scoop revealing that House conservatives want a six-month stopgap spending bill, one of those continuing resolutions we've been talking on and off about. And this would more or less freeze government spending in place until next March. That's uh, quite a punt after House and Senate leaders wanted to go bill by bill and use the hallowed regular order, right? That's right, Adriel. It's, it's not exactly what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Speaker Paul Ryan had in mind at the beginning of this year when they pledged that they were going to get back to regular order, as they called it, which is the way that things are supposed to be done in the budget process, which is passing these 12 appropriations bills individually. So that that was their big kind of goal for the year. And six months later, it's really sort of fallen apart. And we're back to where we are pretty much every year at this point, which is that they're going to need another stopgap at the end of fiscal 2016, which ends September 30th, in order to avoid a government shutdown. And the conservatives say they'd actually accept a plan that locks in a roughly $1.07 trillion spending level, uh, even though they've agitated for a lower cap on spending for next year. Is that to avoid dealing with spending until President Obama is out of office? Essentially, a lot of conservatives are pushing for this continuing resolution that would extend funding into March of next year so that they could skip the so-called lame duck session after the elections. Their fear is that in a lot of these lame duck sessions, they think that Republican leaders sort of capitulate to Democrats in the White House on major legislation. So they're hoping to avoid that entirely and leave that leave the next funding deadline to the new Congress and the new administration. The, the fear being that they might swap a conservative priority and agree for a higher spending level on something. Right. And if you look at last year's omnibus spending bill, which was the final, the final wrap-up of all 12 appropriations bills, a lot of conservatives feel that their Republican leaders really let them down and dropped a lot of the conservative policy provisions that they were really hoping to get enacted. Yes, this is kind of a familiar refrain of sort of an ideological purity test during the uh, the crucible of a lame duck session. Uh, meanwhile, the appropriators don't exactly like the idea of putting off these spending decisions until next year. They want to keep their jurisdiction. They want more time to work on the individual spending bills. But how realistic is that, given that not a single one has made it to Obama's desk? Yeah, it's not very realistic to think that they're still going to actually enact any individual appropriations bills. I think what they really hope now is that they will pass another omnibus, which, you know, it's not a very well-liked 
type way of funding the government from any side, but it's in most views, it's better than a continuing resolution because it does provide new funding rather than just extending the previous year's uh, funding programs. And obviously, federal agencies and programs change from year to year, and many require new, spund- new spending directions. Um, so a lot of appropriators, as you say, are pushing to do a continuing resolution that would run until just after the November elections so that they could return to Washington and do another one of these omnibus measures. Now, the Senate uh, late Thursday rejected moving to a defense spending bill, which really showed, I think, the the level of acrimony in the chamber. Um, You kind of wonder, is is there still the threat of a government shutdown in an election year? It's very unlikely. I don't think anyone expects there to be a threat of a shutdown. But, of course, you never know. So many things, events around the world on the campaign trail could affect what's happening in Congress, and that often, you know, plays into the appropriations process. So last year, there was this big fight over Planned Parenthood, whether um, conservatives wanted to deny funding to them using the continuing resolution in September, something like that could pop up in the next two months. Um, At this point, it's pretty unlikely. I think the biggest fight will just be over the duration of that funding extension. Of the stopgap. So, Andrew, the House dipped its toe into health policy twice in the last week uh, on a watered-down bill to overhaul the mental health system and then on something you've been following for quite a while, a conference agreement to address the misuse of prescription opioids. Uh, It's a problem that a lot of lawmakers have felt in their districts and states. What does this compromise do and what doesn't it do? Primarily, uh, it sets up grant programs that are supposed to help states and local governments um, access more uh, preventive care and uh, treatment options. It sets up grants for law enforcement uh, to have access to things like overdose reversal medication, and it sets up funding for drug courts. But all of that, of course, requires funding. It also does uh, makes policy tweaks that shouldn't actually require that much funding, uh, such as allowing patients to get only get their prescriptions of opioids partially filled, which would mean fewer opioid pills falling into the hands of people who shouldn't be using them. It would also strengthen uh, the ability of the Justice Department to go after foreign drug traffickers who have helped contribute to the epidemic um, because a lot of people after they get hooked on opioid drugs, have been switching to heroin, and foreign drug traffickers have been capitalizing on that. Now, you mentioned funding and and continuing the theme uh, from Ryan's segment. The uh, Democrats were were pretty upset that the legislation doesn't contain any new spending to actually cover the grants and the other stuff they're trying to do here. Um, But that isn't expected to be a deal breaker when the Senate takes up this opioid bill. It shouldn't be. A lot of Democratic senators have been saying that they're still undecided on the bill, even though they all voted for it in March when it originally passed the the chamber. The problem is that the the bill sets up these grant programs and it authorizes these funding streams. But a lot of people, uh, as Ryan was talking about, don't have confidence that the, the appropriations process is actually going to work and get this bill funded at the levels that the people who wrote it uh, envisioned. I think it, it authorizes about $181 million a year uh, in, in new spending. And if the appropriations process, uh, you know, screeches to a halt and the funding stays, stays flat, then this bill 
won't help as many people as it could. It's an interesting philosophical discussion in all this. Uh, when does a public health problem become a crisis, and when does that merit emergency spending? And by emergency spending in Washington speak, that means not having to necessarily offset the spending by cutting other parts of the budget. Yeah, Minority Leader uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House made this point on the, the floor today. Uh, Democrats have been pushing for an emergency spending measure um, that would have given um, about $600 million, uh, to address the opioid crisis. Um, they were unable to attach it in um, either chamber. Um, but when the appropriations process comes around, in, the, in a Republican-led Congress, uh, when some spending levels are increased, um, other public health programs uh, could end up being cut. Uh, Pelosi and other Democrats are worried that that can happen. Uh, on the other hand, you have Zika, which everybody has agreed is an emergency, and they have been working on, uh, unsuccessfully so far, getting an emergency supplemental for Zika. Um, but you know, it might be hard to argue that Zika counts as an emergency, but the opioid crisis doesn't. The opioid crisis is killing you know, many more people than, than Zika has so far. Right. When is an emergency an emergency, and, and when does it qualify? Basically throwing away the rule book and, and just opening up the spigot. Now, Jacob, turning to transportation, uh, Congress has until next Friday to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration. Uh, this is an intriguing package that you follow. It would do things like strengthen airport security. It would set ground, uh, ground rules for the use of drones. Uh, but Congress is just willing to renew it for 14 months. Why 14 months? Well, uh, you're right, Adriel. There are a, a few policy provisions in here that, that are unusual, I think, for an extension. But I think the truth is that lawmakers are still working out a, a longer-term authorization um, with some other uh, with some other issues, uh, including, um, like you mentioned at the top of the show, the, uh, the proposal to spin off air traffic control into a private entity. So that complicates it. There's this controversial part of the package. Uh, it would have spun off air traffic control, make it a nonprofit entity. This got a lot of interest up in arms. The airlines have a stake in this. General Aviation has a stake in this. Is the idea dead? Whose idea was it, first of all, maybe? Uh, well, it's mostly been pushed on the, uh, on the Hill by uh, Representative Bill Schuster, who chairs the, uh, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. I don't think it's dead. I would say that, uh, you know, that's going to be... Um, if you ask Schuster, he says that, uh, you know, they're going to keep pushing forward on it uh, in the next year or so. Um, you know, he is uh, chairman of this committee for another year, assuming the Republicans keep the majority in the, in the House. So, so punt on it for a year and, and maybe you come back and you have another chance at, at giving this a try. Um, separately, you've been writing about the thaw in U.S.-Cuban relations and how that affects flights to Cuba. Uh, the government just approved some new routes. Uh, when and where will people be able to fly from? So uh, it's a provisional um, approval that uh, the Department of Transportation is going to take comments on that for a month, and then uh, they'll make a final decision shortly after that. Uh, it's going to be another 90 days before the approvals are final. I think uh, we're looking at the end of this year, early next year. 
for uh, for flights to actually take off. Um, most are going to be co- going out of uh, Florida airports. Uh, so the proposals are for six flights per day from each from Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Orlando and Tampa would also have uh, daily routes, and then the other cities would be Atlanta, Charlotte. Houston, Los Angeles, New York, and Newark, New Jersey. Have they picked the carriers yet, or is the, do the carriers vie for that? Yeah, the carriers, there are eight. American Airlines, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, Alaska Airlines, Frontier Airlines, JetBlue Airways, Southwest Airlines, and Spirit Airlines. And some lawmakers still have concerns about security conditions on the ground in Cuba. Um, who's going to be doing the inspections and, and how that's going to all work. Is that going to hinder the liberalized travel in any way? Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's really going to hinder that. Uh, it is a concern um, among some lawmakers. There was a uh, delegation from the, the House Homeland Security Committee that, uh, that wanted to go check that out. Um, there's kind of some concerns about uh, you know, is the Cuban air system kind of have the security in place that, that we would expect if they're going to be transporting people to the U.S. But um, and s- some Republicans um, on the House side have been, uh, you know, wanting to ask some more questions about that. But at this point, it doesn't look like it's really going to uh, stop it. CQ Transportation reporter Jacob Fischler on liberalized travel to Cuba and the FAA reauthorization. Thank you. My thanks, too, to healthcare reporter Andrew Siddons and to CQ appropriations reporter Ryan McCrimmon. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com forward slash podcasts. Have a good week. <laughs>